0: All right, well, good morning. It's good to be here in the South Hills. I want to welcome as well our campuses in Robinson and Ross Straver in Washington, of course, my brothers and sisters in Wilkinsburg, and all of you joining us online. So my wife and I, our family now lives on the east end of Pittsburgh uh, near Wilkinsburg, but I grew up just down the road in a community called Hunting Ridge in South Fayette, And uh, I'm the the middle son of three boys. And whenever my mom wanted to get us out of the house, she said, go to the basketball court. It was right uh, down our street. And, And as young boys, we would go play on the basketball court all day. That was our thing. And I grew up in the 1990s, and there was no greater, no greater sports superstar than this guy you're about to see, Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was it. All of my friends wanted his shoes to this day, the Jordan brand is a yearly billion-dollar industry. That's how big Michael Jordan was. We all want it. Uh, the phrase was, "We want to be like Mike." Right? Michael Jordan was it. So I'm going to test your sports trivia now. Though, how many of you have ever heard of the name Muggsy Bogues? Who remembers Muggsy Bogues? All right, we got a bunch of hands in the South Hills. I don't know what the other campus is. So I was a five-foot-ten point guard at South Fayette. Michael Jordan was six-foot-six. I don't think I ever had a chance based off the height, but Muggsy Bogues, he was five foot three inches. Muggsy was the shortest player ever to play in the NBA. If you want to see how short he is, check him out guarding Michael Jordan here in this photo. (laughs) Pretty small, pretty small. And if you think he looks small there, uh, one year he was teammates with Manute Bull, which he might still be the tallest guy ever. Check out this photo. (laughs) At five foot three inches, Muggsy, smallest guy ever to play. He defied the odds. He had a 14-year successful MBA career, and at least in the MBA, he proved that uh, good things do come in small packages. Muggsy proved that. I share that because we're in the middle of this summer series we call J.J. and the Prophets. We're looking at five of the shorter books in God's Word that, at times, they can get overlooked. Books like Jonah, Jude, Nahum, Obadiah, and Haggai. Michael Jordan, everybody knows his name. And many of you here today, you probably are well known with with some of the famous books of Scripture. Some of you know well the book of Genesis. You know well the book of Psalms. You know the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And maybe you know some of Paul's epistles such as Romans. Today, we're digging into what I call the Mugsy book of the Old Testament. It is the shortest book in the Old Testament. One chapter, one chapter. 21 verses, and it's the book of Obadiah. God's word says this. It says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So across all our campus, I want to say this together. Repeat after me. It was a little rough at the 9 a.m. We'll see how you guys do. Repeat after me. All scripture... Is god breathe. god breathe? Come on, a little louder. All Scripture, All scripture. Is, god is god breathe. There we go. That, that word god breathe in the Greek is theopneustos. It means literally God breathed out the very words in the original manuscripts of every book of the Bible. It's not that God looked at Obadiah and said, man, I really like what you wrote there. I'll bless it. I'll call it my word. No, it means that every word, whether it's those red words of Jesus in your Bible or these 21 verses in Obadiah, they are equal authoritative, equally inspired, and God wants to use his word in its entirety to teach us. Sometimes he wants to rebuke us. Sometimes he wants to, as our heavenly father, correct us. And he wants to train us. He wants to empower us to be his church. So our prayer this morning is as we head into Obadiah, maybe it's the first time you're looking at this book, that God would teach us as only he can. Because every time we enter his word, no matter where at, he has something for us that he wants to use to build us up as his church. So let's pray and ask God to lead us this morning. Father, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for every person that you have brought to each of our campuses this morning. And God, when we gather as your body, We need to come in here with reverence for the word of God. God, I ask this morning that you would teach us from Obadiah only as you can. Speak to our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth and the meditations of my heart, they would be honoring and pleasing to you. God, every single one of us, including myself, we want to learn from you this morning. So, Father, we commit this time of your word to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right. If you have your Bibles, open up to Obadiah. If you need to use the the table of contents in the front of your Bible, that's okay. It's probably going to list one page, maybe two in there. But it falls between Amos and Jonah at the end of the Old Testament. Now, most of the prophetic books, the authors, we know something about their life. We, we know a little history behind them. It's not the case with Obadiah. There are actually at least 12 Obadiahs in all of the Old Testament. One of them could have been the guy who wrote this book, but we're not sure who he is. The only thing we know about Obadiah is what his name means in Hebrew, which is worshiper or servant of Yahweh. That's what his name means. We also don't know the exact time period of when Obadiah was written. What we're going to see as we dig in is is Obadiah is written directly to Edom. And we'll get into who they are. And God references a specific time where the Edomites, they gloated over the destruction and the attack of God's people in Jerusalem. So that gives us a few time periods of when Obadiah could have been written. Most believe it falls between one of these two periods. Some believe it, it was written around 848 B.C., as 2 Chronicles 21 describes an attack on Jerusalem and the Edomites were present. That's one spot. But most believe, as we look at the the details of the destruction and the, the pain that came on Jerusalem, most believe that Obadiah probably was written at the fall of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., somewhere around that time by the Babylonians, as that's described in 2 Kings 24 and 25. But again, no one, no one's absolutely certain on when Obadiah was written. So we don't know much about the author. We don't know the exact time period of when it was written. But here's two things we know for sure. We know directly who God is writing to, and we know exactly what his message is. So to get a little background, hold your finger in Obadiah. We're coming right back there. Turn to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. Here in Genesis 25, Abraham's son Isaac is praying to God for children. His his wife, Rebecca, becomes pregnant. And here's the account of that story. Genesis chapter 25, verses 21 through 26. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebecca, became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her and she said, why is this happening to me? So she goes to the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. Esau means red. Edom means red. And the Edomites, as we're going to study, they come from Esau. They are his descendants. After this, his brother came out and his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Jacob would become known as Israel. And the Israelites come from Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. From this moment, even in the the womb of their mother, God tells Rebekah, you have two nations in your womb, Esau's descendants who are the Edomites, Jacob's descendants are Israelites. They are going to butt heads for history. And he says that, that the older Edom will eventually serve the younger uh, Israel. Now, if you would look in God's word, for about 1,000 years, Edom stood against the people of God. Not only stood against them, they persecuted them when they can. They jumped in to fight against them when they can. And the first time that we actually see this division come to fruition is in actually in Numbers chapter 20. So Genesis 36 says that Esau eventually settled in this area right here by the Seir Mountains, and that's where Edom set up shop. So in Numbers chapter 20, uh, Moses is right here. He's leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, and they're, in Kadesh at this point in Numbers 20, and he sends messengers to Edom. He says, let us pass through. He says, your brother nation, we have just left Edom after all this, I mean Egypt, with all the slavery we went through. Let us pass through. We won't touch anything. If we do, we'll pay it back. We just want to pass through your territory as we continue to head to the promised land. The king of Edom says, no, you are not passing through. And just in case you try, he sends out his army to set up this perimeter to make sure that they don't step foot in his country. This forces Israel on a detour as they continue their journey to the promised land. That's just the first instance. If you go read uh, during the reign of Saul, David, and Solomon, you'll see that the name Edom pop up everywhere. They constantly persecuted and stood against the, the people of God. So that's the background into Obadiah. And now God is using the prophet Obadiah to say, I've had enough, Edom. That's it. I'm now going to share of the destruction to come because of how you have stood against my people. So let's dig in, uh, starting with verses 1 and 2 of Obadiah. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. We have heard a message from the Lord. An envoy was sent to the nations to say, Rise, let us go against her for battle. See, I will make you small among the nations, and you will be utterly despised. Through Obadiah, God says, this is my declaration. Thus says the Lord is what your Bible might say. And throughout Obadiah, you're going to see these two words, I will. God is saying, this is all me, Edom. Forget other nations. Me, the sovereign Lord whom you have opposed, I'm going to bring your destruction upon you. And in verse three, he makes this statement that basically summarizes what the issue was with Edom. For all these years, he says, Edom, here's what's wrong with you. Look at verse three. He says, Edom, the pride of your heart has deceived you. The issue with Edom was their pride. The Hebrew for pride comes from this word called Zadon. What it basically means is to boil up inside. It's like a pot of boiling water, and a proud person is like a bubble that thrusts itself to the surface, elevates themselves, but inside they're hollow. There's really nothing to them. Edom, if you look at history, they were pretty small actually, kind of insignificant compared to other nations around them, but man, they were filled with pride. Pride is so ingrained in our fallen nature, even if we don't have much to be proud about at times, we'll still find a way to exalt ourselves. I have sat in my office in Wilkinsburg and met with men who who are doing fine financially, and man, they're filled with pride. Pride. I have met with men in my office who don't have a penny to their name, living on the streets, and yet pride still reigns in their hearts. Eden reminds us that you don't have to be rich and powerful to be filled with pride. God detests pride because it's sin, and sin separates us from him. And he says in his word all the time, I will not stand for pride Proverbs 16, 5 says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. So as we dig in Obadiah this morning, we're going to see this category of pride guide how God now breaks down where Edom has been deceived by their pride. And here's my challenge for us this morning. All Scripture, right? God wants to use all Scripture to train us. For some of us, it might be some correction this morning. To teach us. I want, I want you to reflect as we dig in this morning. Do you have any symptoms of the pride of Edom in your heart this morning? Is it deceiving you that maybe you're not even noticing it? As we dig in and look at the pride of Edom, let's, let's open our hearts so that God speak to us as well. All right, so look at verses three and four as, as God now breaks this down. He says, the pride of your heart has deceived you, You who live in the clefts of the rocks and make your home on the heights. You who say to yourself, who can bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle and make your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down. Here's the first thing for us this morning. The pride of our hearts can deceive us when we start putting our security in the things of this world. Contributing to the the prideful self-deception of Edom was first this this territory in the mountains of Seir. It was this rocky, reclusive region, and it was mainly in a city called Selah that became known as Petra, meaning the rock. It was an area accessible only by this mile-long canyon, and it was was literally almost impossible to attack as an enemy army. So with its natural fortifications, Edom was prideful in their territory, knowing that no nation really could come against them in battle. Edom found their security in the physical fortress of their land, yet yet spiritually they were weak and empty. And God said, I'm going to bring you down. So let me ask you this, church, this morning to begin. Has pride ever deceived you, or maybe it's deceiving you now, To start finding your security in the things of this world instead of the Lord. The way you live your life, the things that consume your thoughts, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, the resources that God has given you, what do they say about what you truly value? Pride deceives us when we start putting our security in the physical things of this world. That, that job, that, that house we need, uh, our, our possessions, even our physical bodies, instead of finding our security in Jesus Christ alone, which is the only security that will never fade or spoil. First Peter 1, 3, and 4 says, Praise to the God of our Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this is an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, and never fade. That is kept in heaven for you. Everything you own here in the physical world, it's gonna fade, including your body someday. But man, if we put our trust, not in the physical, but in the spiritual security of Jesus Christ, what a witness we can be to this world That when we lose our job, we we hit that financial crisis, we have that health scare. We're human beings. We're going to face worry, doubt, and frustration, but we always get back to our source of strength and security, which is Jesus Christ. What a witness we can be that he is the rock of our salvation. So that's the first thing, and God keeps going. Look at verses 5 through 7. God says, Edom, if thieves came to you, if robbers in the night, oh, what a disaster awaits you. Would they not steal only as much as they wanted? If grape pickers came to you, would they not leave at least a few grapes? But how Esau will be ransacked. His hidden treasures will be pillaged. All your allies will force you into the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. And you won't even detect it. Unlike thieves who come into a home, they take what they need, and they leave a bunch of stuff behind, God says, not so with you, Edom. You're going to be wiped clean. And here's the irony. Those same nations right now that are your allies, those who you consider your your friends, those who you just broke bread with, I'm going to use those same nations to bring upon this destruction. Edom put so much trust in man, they had no room to trust in God. Let me ask you this: Has, has pride ever deceived you, where you start to trust in man more than in the living God? Who are you trusting in right now? When you face trouble, when you need support, when you need guidance in a situation, do you find yourself always running to some human being, and sometimes they're good places to go? Our spouse, a parent? a friend, good places to go, but, but they can never be that, that source of ultimate trust. We should always first, in every situation, go to our knees to God in prayer because we trust more in him than any human being. I want to say this as well to, to everyone sitting with us this morning. Who do you allow to determine your self-worth, how you view yourself? Some of you today have put more value in what some person thinks of you than what your God thinks of you. I have met with people who, after years have gone by, they are still scarred by what some person, maybe an abusive parent, said things about you that just aren't true. They are not true of who you are. Your God says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that he loves you and he desires a relationship with you. If we have young people in here this morning doing youth ministry for years, I've seen too many teenagers go down the wrong path because they put all their trust in what some boyfriend or girlfriend said about them instead of looking at what God says about you. Never let some person dictate what you wear, what you do, or how you view yourself. You're a child of God. You're you're a daughter and son of God. Look at his word and how he views you. Some of you right now are are lending things at work. Maybe a boss you want to impress, that person dictates how you act and what you do. You see, pride deceives us when even when we start to trust more in man instead of always trusting in in what God says about who we are. All right, let's keep going. Look at verses 8 and 9. In that day, will I not destroy the wise men of Eden? Those of understanding in the mountains of Esau, your warriors Timon will be terrified and everyone in Esau's mountains will be cut down in the slaughter. Edom was also very well known for their wisdom. Jeremiah talks about how how the wisdom of Timon, they were well known for being bright, educated people. They were wise. And you know what? They were prideful about their human wisdom. That gave no room for the wisdom of God. Instead of humility towards God, they boasted in their human wisdom. Proverbs 11.2 says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. You see, the pride of our hearts can also deceive us when we start to rely on our own wisdom instead of the wisdom of God. I want to speak to two types of people this morning, and you are in one category or the next. First, I want to speak to those of you today at any of our campuses. If you're here with us and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I want to speak to you this morning. I want to be honest with you. Pride has most likely deceived you in believing that somehow you can get to heaven on your own wisdom and power. If you live a good moral life, I'll get in. If I at least go to church on the weekends and check off that box, I'll get in. Somehow, if you're good enough, you'll get in. A proud person starts to trust in themselves, thinking that they can get to heaven on their own instead of humbling themselves before the Almighty God. Jesus said in Matthew 5.3, he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The poor in spirit are those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy apart from the divine grace of God, who realize that the Bible says in Romans three twenty three that we're all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. You can't get to him on your own. And my prayer for you, wherever you are, that God is humbling your heart right now. And he's saying, come to me, not based off your work, but based off the work of Jesus Christ, my son, who took on flesh, lived a perfect, sinless life, and bare your sin on the cross? And he rose from the grave, defeating death and sin once and for all. Humble yourself today, and trust in me. Trust in what Jesus Christ did for you, not what you've done, it's about what I've done for you through my Son. First John 1:9 says that, if you will confess your sin, God is faithful. He is just and will forgive you your sins and he will purify you from all unrighteousness. Our prayer for you today is that God is working in your heart. My words have zero power, but my prayer is that the Holy Spirit right now is convicting your heart, drawing you to himself. Stop relying on yourself and your own wisdom. Rely on God who who did it for you through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, the second group, Is my brothers and sisters at all our campuses this morning, believers. Here's where pride can set in for us, church. Pride starts to deceive us when we start to lose that that hunger for the Word of God. We start to, to rely on ourselves again for the decisions of our life. Some of you, maybe in January, you said, New Year's resolution, God's Word every day. And then two months comes in and you're out every other day. Busyness of spring and summer hits. And it's once or twice a week. And and then for some of you, maybe right now is the only time you're digging into God's word. That's a dangerous place to be. Pride has deceived you that you're okay not, not being in his word each day. This needs to be the number one source of your wisdom each and every day. And not just for you. There are generations after us who need to see that modeled in us. So, so last month, my wife and I went on vacation with my family. And since I was young, my dad has always prayed for us whenever he could. But specifically on vacation, he loves spending that week each morning. No one's rushing to anything. And we would spend time in the Word and in prayer. And uh, my dad is a full-blooded Italian, which means he likes to talk, like a lot. Like a lot of, a lot of talking. <laughs> and he's a preacher, so he likes to pray and preach a lot. And my son, Ezra, he's almost four years old, and he's starting to understand all this stuff. So he knew, Pappy's going to lead us. He calls my dad Pappy. Pappy's going to lead us in prayer each morning. So, so one morning we're praying, and I'm here, and Ezra's next to me, and my dad's praying. And for a four-year-old, he might be going a little long. Might be going a little long. So Ezra's praying, and he goes, Daddy, Daddy. And I look down at him, and he calls my dad Pappy. He says, Daddy, Pappy too long. He's too long. He's too long. So as a father, I'm like, Ezra, just keep praying, keep praying. (laughs) And afterwards, I try to explain to him, I know that was a little long, but but Pappy's praying for us. Remember, we've got to be respectful. We're going to God in prayer. and I don't know if he's getting it, right? I don't know if he's getting it. So two weeks later, we're at dinner at home, and we like to rotate who prays, myself, my wife. And now Ezra's doing it. And a long prayer for Ezra is usually 15 seconds. If he can get there. That's a long prayer. But but this night he was so excited. So he gets ready to pray, and he starts praying for all his family. Then he's praying for, for all the other kids at the Wilkinsburg Preschool that he could remember. He's praying for random toys. And then, like the last 20 seconds, we don't even know what he said. I mean, we have no idea what he said. And like a minute and a half goes by... And finally, Chris and I are looking at each other like, Do "We just let him keep going. We might as well." And he he says, "Oh, son," says, "Amen." And, and as soon as he says "Amen," he pops his head up, and he's so proud. And he says, "Mommy, that was a really good one. It was really long, like Pappy." <laughs> and. Uh, we love that story, and we told my dad, and it was a good laugh, and it's cute, right? It's cute, but, but honestly, when I, when I was laying in bed that night, I was thanking God. At four years old, my son knows that his grandfather daily gets his wisdom from God. He, he saw for a week his grandfather lead his family in the word of God. I pray he sees that in me grandparents, parents, youth workers, children workers, teenagers, younger brothers and sisters, if you have any influence over the next generation, they're watching you. They want to see, where do you get your wisdom? Where do you go each day to be fed? They need to see us, church. First and foremost, we need to do it for our own lives. But man, I'm telling you, they're watching us. They want to know, where do you go to daily be fed your wisdom each and every day. Okay, I got a little off there from Obadiah. So we're going to jump back in, get back into Obadiah with me. We're going to look at verses 10 through 14 here. And Obadiah now specifically addresses Edom about this instance when God's people was under attack. And listen to what Edom did. Listen to how they reacted to their brother nation. Look at verse 10. Because of your violence against your brother Jacob... You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On that day, you stood aloof. While strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them, Edom. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor, to, nor gloat over them in the day of their calamity, in the day of their disaster, nor cease their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. God says, Edom, your pride was truly shown when you saw your brother suffering And you not only complacently did nothing, you even rejoiced and you added to those sufferings. You stood aloof, you gloated, you boasted, you looted and and you even cut off their survivors. Now we'll look at this and say, well, I'm not that bad. That's pretty bad. Edom, that's really bad. Well, let me ask you this as I was praying on this part this week. Has pride ever deceived your heart to the point where you just start thinking of yourself all the time instead of others. Pride deceives us into believing that true joy comes in being served instead of serving others. Jesus Christ modeled the opposite. Mark ten forty five says, for even the Son of Man, he did not come to be served, but he came to serve, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. Let me ask you this. How often... Do you think of the needs of those around you instead of dwelling on the wishes you want granted in your own life? When was the last time you just served someone without ever being asked? Even in the church, at all our campuses, even here, sometimes this can be all about us. Instead of about honoring and glorying, glorifying God. So when Kristen and I were were church hopping, we did this for the first year, right before we got married about 11 years ago, I thought I had the right intentions of looking for a church, but my my heart was off. I was praying, God, lead us to a church that's right for us. And what I really was saying, if I'm honest, lead us to the church where they got that perfect worship style. Man, that preacher is the kind of, the preacher we want, and they got the programs that, that would make sense for our stage of life. Good things, but man, it was all about us. And after about a year, God convicted my heart as the leader of my family, and my prayer changed to this God, lead us to the church that's right for you. That's right for you to use our gifts that you have given us to build up your body for your kingdom and your glory. Within that next month, we were led to a church that God had us plant some roots for four years. Did they have the perfect worship style? No. Was the preacher exactly how we wanted him to preach? No, but you know what, we knew the word of God was coming. Did they have all the programs we wanted? No. But we felt like, all right, God, we we see a place where we think you can use us. And within one week, without us looking around, the youth pastor came up to us and said, I know you're new, I saw you last week, you need to serve in youth ministry. My wife and I, we just got here. And uh, we're like, well, we're going to talk about membership and things, but, but we need more young people in our youth. And we said, and Chris and I was like, we know what God's doing. So we jumped in. After four years of youth ministry there, God blessed us with more youth ministry at South High School, which led to college ministry, led us here to the Bible Chapel, and now uh, four blessed years in Wilkinsburg. And I go back to that moment when God grabbed my heart and said, Dave, it's not all about you. It's about me. Find a place where I can use you. You know, Kirk mentioned earlier, we have many needs here at the church. I don't want to use this as some guilt trip. Well, maybe a little bit, but (laughs) it's not to get all of you to start serving. I just want you to to have your heart right this week in that prayer. God, how do you want to use me? Because I don't want even this, God. I don't want church to be all about me. I want it to be about you. Use me, God. Don't let the pride of my heart deceive me that even your church... Is about me. All right, so in Obadiah verses 15 to 21, we can't dig into all that this morning. We don't have the time to do it. But what God basically does is he prophesies the coming judgment to come on Edom. And he uses Edom to speak of the judgment that was going to come to all nations who oppose God. Now, Edom's judgment has already played out in history, they they basically disappear from the history books. We do know in the 5th century, uh, a people called the Nabatians defeated them. They removed them from Petra, and a remnant settled uh, southern in an area called Indomia. And in 70 AD, the Indomians fought against Rome with the Jews, and they were crushed. Never to be heard from again. It's It's like Edom just disappears. That doom of Edom, though, is opposite of the future of Israel. God says in verses 15 to 21, here are the territories that I'm going to restore to you, Israel, one day. Speaking of the time when when Christ returns and reigns over his people, when God conquers his enemies once and for all, and Obadiah ends with this simple promise in verse 21. He says, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. There are times in our lives, right, even right now, where, where things seem like, They're just chaotic in our world. We think of the past decade in the Middle East. We think of the tension right now with North Korea. And we all know about the division right now in our own nation over the past two weeks. Some of you are here today and you have brokenness in your family, or maybe personally, you're going through some serious stuff. It's normal as human beings to have doubt at times, to have worry at times, to have frustration. At times, but, but one truth, one truth that should always bring us back is that the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. God's word is clear that God is 100% in control of his creation. If I could say there's one overarching promise of Obadiah, it's just that. God is in control of all things. He tells Edom that. And he tells his people that. And still to this day, we need to cling to that promise. He is in control of whatever is going on in your life. Proverbs nineteen twenty one says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. That leads us to communion this morning. And at all our campuses, I'm going to invite the, the ushers and elders to get ready for communion. But church, God gave us the ordinance of communion to, to remember what his son did. So, so, so whatever is going on, if God spoke to your heart today, my prayer is as believers, we partake of the bread and the cup. We will center our hearts back to Jesus. If you are with us this morning at one of our campuses and you have never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I'm gonna ask that you do not partake of communion. It is for believers only. Our prayer is that God's working in your heart. But for us, the body of Christ, let us come together right now Remembering what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins, knowing the security we have in him can never be touched. No matter what comes our way, we have eternal security because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins.